I wanted to share this story. So one of the things that I sometimes struggle with, my family still tease me about a time when there were lots of people walking by. It was quite busy and loud. And it's something that I feel that you can give to the community. That authenticity shines greater than all the things that we worry about that make us different. different, different, different. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Submissions Podcast. Wherever you are, however you listen to podcasts, we hope that this podcast achieves its intentions of being a platform to explore and share stories from Muslims. In our podcast, we share stories from everyday Muslims doing everyday things. Some of the stories will make you chuckle. Some of them will leave your heart glowing. Some of them will make you anxious or feel on edge. All of them are true stories told with the authentic voices of the Muslims who experienced them. Between the stories, you'll hear from a couple of members of the submissions team talking and reflecting about the stories and sharing their own thoughts and insights whilst stimulating discussion. We pray we can achieve all that we intend and more for the sake of Allah to whom we submit. Bismillah, this is Submissions. Assalamu alaikum everyone, my name is Ayn. I am a 28-year-old from Malaysia, currently living in London. In my free time, I like cycling, reading and eating good food with my husband. Assalamu alaikum everyone, my name is Hania and by the time this goes out, I'll be 26. Um, I'm living in Surrey and I spend my days at the moment painting, podcast listening and collecting plants. Today's episode is called Unapologetically Muslim. In today's episode, we will hear three stories revolving around the theme of embracing our Muslim identity through difficulty. So, um, when I think about Muslim identity or my Muslim identity, coming from Malaysia, I think of how easy and natural it was to be a Muslim in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Everyone had my beliefs and everyone around me prayed. We had prayer rooms in every mall and it was just something very facilitated mm -hmm. and in contrast when I came here um, when I was about 20 everything was a bit more challenging looking for prayer rooms were a constant struggle and in some parts of the country where I visited I'll be the only hijabi in town so um, there will be a lot of eyes on my beautiful scarves <laughs> <laughs> It was a bit of a shock to the system initially, but what I did gain from it, and now I've been here for almost 10 years now, that even though it's harder to be here um, as a Muslim, being constantly reminded of my faith definitely makes Islam and my Muslim identity much more meaningful. It's beautiful. You actually reminded me when my cousin went to, yeah, the type of place in the UK that you're describing and a man, an elderly man came up to her and said, I like your jihad. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, he went her hijab, but it was, it was sweet, but funny that <laughs> it, it got a little mixed up with the terminology. <laughs> so I guess when I think about Muslim identity, it's something that I was really, alhamdulillah, lucky that was really reinforced throughout my childhood. But then I think I definitely grappled with it during teenagehood. Um, and all the contradictions of teenagehood and so I think you know because of that experience it's a topic that my local Muslim youth group that I'm part of leading for yeah years and years it's something that we've 
addressed and returned to all the time. Sometimes when we're not talking about identity at all, but the topic always kind of manages to cycle back to that. And I think it's, you know, it's teenagehood is a difficult time. You're trying to establish who you are mm-hmm. and assert who you are. And so, you know, there's often a struggle in being confident in your Muslim identity as a teenager when it's not necessarily something that's being celebrated by your peers or by the kind of external authority figures in your life. So it's really beautiful to, you know, spend time with young people exploring ways of embracing and harmonising this important part of that identity with, you know, the rest of who they are and who they're trying to become. And I think stories like the ones that we're going to hear in this episode are amazing examples. Yeah, I love that you acknowledge that it was a struggle growing up as a teenager and now that you are an adult you're um, giving back to the teenagers now so that they have the support to like explore their Muslim identity with with more confidence in a safe environment so it's it's like going full circle isn't it yeah a little bit and I think I mean I was really grateful to have you know some elder kind of sisters in my community that did that for me and definitely created that space for me so it's yeah I think you're right in full circle that seems very inspiring for our future umma inshallah (laughs) (laughs) um so we're super excited to share our first story who comes from Riham where she tells us about her enlightening trip to Cuba and how a serendipitous encounter inspired her to do more back home let's hear from her So in 2017, my husband and I decided to visit Cuba. We had been super keen on the idea for a couple of years and we'd read a lot about it, its history um, and its natural beauty. And we were really excited. So we had two weeks off. We made an itinerary. We visited many of the key historical areas. We went to the beautiful sandy beaches um, and we went trekking through the mountains and beautiful landscapes of the countryside. To paint a picture of Havana, it's a beautiful city um, stuck in time back in the 1950s with these gorgeous buildings um, and beautiful architecture and these vintage cars. It's a truly special place. But one thing we were really aware of was the lack of Muslims in Cuba. And before we traveled, we had read that there were around 10,000 people in the whole country who were Muslim um, and the majority of the people who were Muslim had been as a result of reverting to Islam um, and so that would make up around 0.1% of the population so understandably Islam wasn't a very common religion. So we had planned in our stay in Havana to have a hotel centrally located so that we were able to go back and forth to be able to pray. Um, The weather was absolutely beautiful. We would spend our days going in and out of alleys. It just so happened that on the first day, as we were walking down one of the streets, we realised that there's a mosque. So we go in and it's a beautifully decorated mosque inside. And there's people sitting in different corners of the mosque praying. And some of them are reciting the Quran beautifully. And it feels like you've entered this secret, special place. And my heart is trembling of joy. 
to have found this mosque in a place that we didn't expect to find it. And so as we leave, we notice that there's some signs on the door that don't, from the Cuban government, that don't allow for congregation, don't allow for group or jama'ah prayers, and it specifically asks people to go in and worship alone. And that paints a sad picture, but we carry on with our day and this becomes our mosque that we visit regularly. On the third day of being in Havana, we were as usual walking down the roads and it was a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and we get the most unexpected rain. We're walking down the road and we're completely inappropriately dressed for this weather and I'm running from shade to shade trying to cover myself from the rain and at one point I'm running so far ahead trying to cover myself from the rain and I turn around and realize my husband is much further back than I am and he has no clue where I have gone so I shout out in the middle of the street in the rain my husband's name Mohammed Mohammed and he hears me and he's heading towards me but at that exact moment in time a man is passing by and he looks at me and he says "Salam alaikum sister and I think that he's thinking I'm Muslim because I wear a hijab and so I say wa alaikum salam and he starts asking me oh you're Muslim and I say yes we're Muslim and he's not a man that I recognize from the mosque or anywhere that I've seen before. And so my husband joins us and I explain who this man is. And the man gets really happy to see us both. And he's really excited that we're Muslim. And he's fascinated by the fact that my husband is called Muhammad and that I wear a hijab. And he thinks it's so great. And he starts asking a few questions about where we're from and, you know, have a small but brief conversation and we part ways. That brief interaction left such a warm feeling inside us for the rest of the day. And I kept thinking back to how excited he had been just to find out that we're Muslim. It was really humbling. Later on in the evening, my husband and I are talking. And we're discussing how out of touch we're feeling um, with work ongoing at the same time as life commitments it feels like we're not in touch with our religion as much as we should and really feel that we could be doing more for ourselves in terms of widening our knowledge especially closeness with the Quran and being able to really connect with the community and you know help ourselves and help other people and so we leave Havana for a few days and come back maybe four days later back into the city and so we're walking around one of the main roads in Havana and we hear this man shouting Muhammad Muhammad and we turn around and surprisingly it's the man that we had met four days ago in the rain and this man was ecstatic to have found us and we were too <laughs> so we stand, and it was a beautiful day, not a raindrop in sight, thankfully, um, and we have a chat, and he tells us about his life in Havana, how he became Muslim, um, how difficult it was for his family to accept it, um, not just because 
um, he was taking on a different religion to them, but also because of the associations that Islam had in the West um, and, you know, what media portrays and sometimes even us as Muslims, how we portray ourselves. And we're having this beautifully interesting conversation with this gentleman that we had just met a few days ago and by serendipity we've met again. So he tells us how he and his wife met and he shows us pictures of his beautiful wife and his beautiful children and he's so excited sharing all these pictures with us um, and he tells us how difficult it was for her to accept Islam um, at first and he tried and tried and tried and you know kept working out and trying on their relationship as well as his dean and eventually she accepted Islam and it was the happiest day of his life and it was so heartwarming and beautiful to hear that. He was also telling us his journey with the Quran and how difficult it was for him to learn to read Arabic, especially with the current climate in Cuba, being a secular country, and how he had to self-teach the Quran and sometimes hold secret circles unknown to government or locals um, for him to be able to even read Quran or recite it in the way he does. And it was so sad to hear that Muslims face such trials and tribulations all around the world. Things like freedom of speech or freedom of action, things that we take for granted here, it's just so difficult. And so we continue on this conversation and he tells us of his struggles and, he, and we're really humbled that this man has chosen to open up about his life and how he as a Muslim, um, you know, works and lives in Cuba. And so by the time we finish talking, maybe half an hour or even three quarters of an hour has passed and we've shared stories and pictures and we've laughed and we felt humbled that he chose to tell us his story. And so the times come and we part ways and we hope to see each other again. And as we're walking away, my husband and I feel really warm again. Um, and it's just such a special feeling to have met someone like him. And so my husband turns to me and he says, Raham, you have a really valuable skill that was taught to you by an amazing Quran teacher. She taught you how to do tajweed and how to recite beautifully. And it's something that I feel that you can give to the community and you can give to your friends or whoever it is that wishes to be taught by you. And so he says, why don't you hold a weekly Quran lesson in our own home for a few hours a week, nothing too taxing, and just invite some of your friends around, teach them how to read the Quran, teach them how to do tajweed and see how it goes. And the idea shocks me. I almost feel embarrassed because I don't think that I could teach anything. But he's absolutely right. If somebody was able to teach me, I can teach other people. And if this trip to Cuba taught me anything, it was that if we have opportunities in life, we should take them and we should really understand and be grateful for the opportunities and freedoms that we have no matter how small because people around the world struggle to get these little fights and little freedoms in order to learn something or gain closeness to God especially Muslims and so I come back to London and I set up my weekly 
Quran circle, I speak to a couple of friends who are really keen, um, and I set it up, um, and it's a weekly circle. It happens every Thursday, um, and it's been going since 2017, the month after I came back from Cuba, up until now, it's that third year running. And I'm really and truly grateful to God to have been able to go on that holiday to Cuba to really open my eyes um, for the struggle that different Muslims go through and in many ways finding my own feet in terms of giving something back and finding my spirituality in a time and place that I really didn't expect. I really enjoyed that story and I like how it transported us across the world and then back but there was yeah. this continuous like ripple effect yeah Riham did um, a beautiful like how she painted this story was really beautiful you could, I could see the vintage cars I could feel the sun on my skin although I, I haven't been to Cuba myself <laughs> no neither have I and I was actually thinking like what does this mustard look like because I wonder whether it fits in with the like quite distinct look of the place yeah yeah so I was I mean, I'd love to like see a picture of the mustard or a video of it as well yeah I think the first thing that really stood out to me was like this ripple effect as I said and that and I see it as a way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessing the efforts of this man who's gone through this struggle and you know we've we hear about the reward for somebody who struggles with reading the Quran is greater than the one who finds it easy yeah just an amazing like manifestation of this reward is like the ripple effect that he's had in essentially inspiring the establishment of a Quran circle that's now been going on for three years and you know how much of that reward inshallah that he's received um, for being the inspiration the instigator behind that and he probably has no idea that his own personal efforts with the Quran have led to other people making efforts with the Quran yeah, thousands of miles away um, yeah, and how incredible like inshallah like when he yeah reaps that reward like what a, a surprise it will be yeah I think something that really resonated with me is that how unlikely was his reversion in the first place like how beautiful is Allah's wisdom and Allah's planning such mm. that he could find Islam like I guess his heart was just so yearning for faith and then mm -hmm. like despite all of the hurdles like being in Cuba and not being no not having wi-fi in Cuba yeah. and uh, <laughs> um and they're not being like there'll be one mosque where five people go to, and then not having the permission to have Juma'a or like big groups of people congregating together for worship. Despite all of that, um, hurdles he found Islam and how he treasured it and how he's like trying to improve himself is just so mind blowing, and it just puts my muslim story like in its place because every like being born muslim mm -hmm. we kind of take it for granted about our journey to islam mm -hmm. because we did we kind of just assimilated it from our parents and how easy it was to like 
learn the Quran, learn Arabic and things because it was just part of our upbringing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is um, a phrase of being born Muslim and being born again Muslim, you know, like re rediscovering your faith again and questioning right, why, like having to choose why, it for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like why, why do you believe in what you believe in? And just falling in love with Islam again is just amazing. Yeah, I think that's yeah such a beautiful point. And I think Rahman's story really illustrates that in that obviously like she was, you know, Muslim, but we have these points of like rejuvenation throughout our lives where we know that we can and I think it was a good reminder to her that you know, there's always a space to grow, there's always some way to be better. Um, and it's yeah. like searching for those points of inspiration or those points of um, improvement. There's still so many aspects of worship that we have yet to embrace or perfect or um, even discover maybe that, um, you know, is still there for us to learn about. And also, I think what I took from the story is, like, we shouldn't underestimate the, like, small good deeds. Mm -hmm. and how like this very small chance encounter kind of inspired Reham to create a group back home and those girls will hopefully pass it on to their to their friends or their children and how this ripple effect of goodness all stemmed from one chance encounter which he wouldn't have thought about this sharing of his conversion story as being a mm. like tipping point to things that will build after that after that chance encounter it's just very very inspiring it is a beautiful story i think the other thing that i really enjoyed was that it was such a demonstration of like this universal language that we have as muslims of like just the name muhammad or something that like this random man immediately picked up on I think any of us that have, you know, sometimes it's not even that we've traveled too far away from home. I remember being in Wales once um, and literally like we saw this group of Muslims across the street and they ran, they literally just ran across the road and we're like, Woo, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like this immediate point of connection when you're far from home and it's like a, yeah, just amazing that we can, that we have yeah. all of these ways of recognizing each yeah. other. I can, I can totally like relate with that because like coming um to uni and then going <laughs> to the prayer room and then seeing all my friends in Islamic society and just be like embraced by like um whole wholeness and you know yeah. goodness is just so comforting especially when your family is like thousands of miles away yeah that must have been yeah like a home away from home so just as Raham was looking for a prayer space and found it in Cuba unexpectedly. Our next story is from Inaya, who is a 27-year-old doctor based in London, and her story is also about finding space for worship in an unlikely place. So one of the things that I sometimes struggle with is trying to find somewhere to pray, especially when you're outside or in the shopping mall or somewhere where there might not be an obvious prayer room. So oftentimes I try to ask as much as I can and other times I'll find a quiet corner and not manage to quite muster up the courage to ask for a place to pray. So a few years ago I was at an event for 
a Bollywood music singer in the Royal Albert Hall. I was with my family. I was with a lot of people who were our family friends. And there were lots of us watching this lady perform. She was really, really good. And then at the intermission time, it was time for Maghrib. So some of the group decided to pray in the corner. They were quite happy to pray in the corner. There were lots of people walking by. It was quite busy and loud. And while no one would be... Nobody was really looking at them. I still didn't really feel comfortable praying there because my concentration in prayer is not the best. And it was really loud. And I didn't think that I'd be able to concentrate for the Maghrib prayer in that corner of the cafe where they were praying. So I asked a lady who was working there if she could take me to a prayer room. I asked her, you know, hi, I'm Muslim. There are a few minutes that I just need to pray my sunset prayer. Is there a small room that I can just pray in, please? And if not, then I totally understand. She paused for a second, raised her eyebrows, and then her face lit up. She said, yes, of course, actually, there's a Muslim colleague here we have. He has a room, he's got a prayer mat, you, you can pray in his room. I was so excited, I was really happy, like, alhamdulillah, I've asked and I'm able to get this place to pray. So she led me down some large stairs and she took me to the bottom of the theatre and then she said, oh, you know what, just wait a few seconds, please, because there's my boss over there. I'll just ask him if it's OK with you. So she went there and I could see them talking, but obviously I couldn't make out what they were saying. And I was trying to read their expressions and sort of prepared myself for the worst news possible to just for her to say that actually you can't pray there. And then she came back and said, actually, I'm sorry, you can't pray there. My heart hurt. I was a bit upset. I thought, hmm, OK. I'll go back there into the cafe, to the noisy cafe and hope for the best, inshallah. And then after a short pause, she said, I, you can't pray there because it's a really messy room and it's not really clean for you to pray in. So instead, I've been instructed to take you to the Queen's Suite. The Queen's Suite? I was confused. What's the Queen's Suite? I asked. She said, the Queen's Suite is where the Queen, as in Elizabeth II, the Queen of England, it's where the Queen waits in between performances at this theatre. I was absolutely shocked. I didn't understand what she was saying. I didn't ask any questions. I just silently followed her as she led me up these wonderful stairs and opened a large wooden door with her key. She then led me inside and it was just such a serene, beautiful place. It was a large room with red carpet and lovely walls and sofas and it just felt like I had entered one of the royal palaces and she said it's okay just lock up when you're done and I just remember praying there making sujood there thinking about wow are there angels here with me right now in the queen's suite I just remember being so overwhelmed that subhanallah when when we ask Allah for things or when we make the intention to please Allah and ask people for things, then Allah paves the way for us. In the end, alhamdulillah, I was able to pray my salah in the most tranquil and peaceful place, one that I did not even imagine I would have set foot inside, let alone prayed in. Alhamdulillah. So despite me listening to that story many, many times, it always brings a smile to my face because I just love how serendipitous it was that she never, like Inaya would never have thought that she, that night she would pray in where Queen Elizabeth would have 
like sat in during intermissions of plays and maybe Queen Victoria was there I don't know because <laughs> all the big shots and all the um previous monarchy <laughs> would have been in that room and she um was given the chance to pray in that room is just amazing yeah you're right that how many you know people with this worldly status um you know have been in this room but in the end in Elias' situation or circumstance, like that room was used for something far greater, really, than hosting these people with people with status. Yeah, exactly. And it's so relatable. Like, how many times do we go out, especially during winter season, where the prayer um, times are shorter? Like, we're scurrying around, finding a quiet place to pray, and especially at work. Like for me, it's a constant struggle to be like, I would like to pop to the canteen for a bit just to get something. But actually, I'm going downstairs to pray in the prayer room. And it takes like courage to ask someone to be like, is there a place to pray? Because it's something that is not really talked about much in this community. And um, But what I found in my personal experience, the more that you just say, I need five minutes to pray, the easier that it becomes and your colleagues don't really, like, what is the worst thing that can happen when you ask someone, can can I just... Often is there they'll a just be pray? embarrassed if they don't, if they hadn't thought of it or if they, you know, can't suggest somewhere for you. What, what is some of the crazy spots that you have prayed in? One time I remember being um, on a work trip to the country Guinea in West Africa and um, I was... Yeah, I had a day full of meetings and then was flying out like just before my time. So I wanted to make sure that I prayed my combined travellers prayer of Doha and Asr before the flight because I knew that we, we would be flying during sunset. And I remember like not having a chance to actually stop. I was in a car for most of the day, kind of driving from meeting to meeting and then to the airport. And when I got to the airport, I thought, okay, I ha- must find somewhere to pray here. And I was travelling with someone really senior in the company who was I was a little intimidated by but Guinea is like a very it has a huge Muslim population so I thought okay maybe there'll be a Muslim there like there'll be prayer space in the airport itself and I hadn't noticed one you know on the flight in or when we were arriving so I was looking around I saw people outside the airport praying on like these straw mats like they're just doing their individual things so I thought okay maybe I could just like find a corner somewhere and, and pray in the departures lounge and that's what I'll do but as we were going through security like this amazing thing happened in that literally congregation just kind of materialized before my eyes like these people just kind of got up and it was like a flash mob they just got up walked to this just it wasn't a designated space it was just literally part of a corridor in the security area and they were like air hostesses and airport staff and they just like whipped out these masalas from nowhere and made this little jamaat and so I said to my colleague I was like oh I'm just gonna go and join them and I dumped my bags with them and I ran over and um, I kind of <laughs> gestured to them like the like Allah Akbar sign and they were like yeah sure and they gave me a masala as well and then yeah I prayed with them and it was lovely and yeah amazing how like I guess I've made the intention to you know find somewhere to pray and I thought I'd just be praying by myself in a little awkwardly in a corner somewhere, but um, yeah. in the end, I ended up in this jamal. Yeah, it makes um, it reminds me of how Allah says, "I have made 
the whole earth, your prayer mat. So you can bow your head down to Allah in any corner of the universe. Absolutely. What about you? Have you have you had any um crazy prayer experiences? So I think my craziest prayer spot. Well, I always pray outside. Um, for some reason. So there was a time when we, me and my cousin were in Amsterdam and we were cycling and then we kind of got lost on this island somewhere. And then it was, it was prayer time. So I just put a, a prayer mat down on the grass and it was wet because it was autumn, obviously, and it was raining before that. And just put it on this long, wet grass. And then I just prayed in there and it was very cold. <laughs> Um, and I remember it being quite cloudy, but I just felt so serene because we were next, we were next to the sea and then it was very quiet. It was very isolated. And I just put down my prayer mat, bowed down my head onto the prayer mat and just felt super calm. Although we were lost and we didn't know our way back, but somehow after that, we, we made our way back to our hostel and we were okay. As we heard from Inaya and how she mustered the courage to ask for a prayer space in the most unlikely places, our next story is from Zahra and her beautiful story revolves around being confidently herself in difficult situations. Let's hear from her, inshallah. So the story I'm going to tell is about the time I spoke about fried chicken for an interview in the role of the Prime Minister's Policy Unit at 10 Downing Street. I was, you know, signed up to get job alerts and there were certain kinds of job of a certain type that I hadn't really considered before that kept coming up. And one of them was uh, in the number 10 Policy Unit. I remember looking at the advert and just immediately assuming people like me don't get to do jobs like that. You know, I probably don't have the look or the talk. And I just assumed the people who do those kinds of roles are kind of young white men, someone called Benedict, you know. I was really surprised when I saw on the job advert that if you're interested in the role, get in touch with the incumbent, the person doing the role currently, Zainab Hashmi. I just immediately felt this excitement and this disbelief. That says Zainab at number 10. I just couldn't believe it. And that in itself was just a huge surprise for me. And I think, I do wonder, like, if it hadn't said Zainab, would I have even applied? For me, policy is what I entered the civil service to influence. So I wanted her honest thoughts. Would this be a good role? And yeah, by the end of that conversation, even though we didn't know each other, we were complete strangers, she said, Zara, I think you have to apply for this job. So I did. And I got to tell you, I was really nervous. I was really intimidated by the thought of everyone else who'd be applying for this job. And I thought, you know, how am I measure up to all the other candidates? So I applied and I was... Uh, Alhamdulillah, invited to interview. And that's when things got really serious. 
I was very nervous. So there were a few weeks between finding out about the interview and, and, and actually doing it. I remember the morning of the interview, you know, the nerves came to a head. Just kept thinking of everyone else who'd be going for this job and how could I possibly measure up in comparison to them. I'd only been in the civil service for 18 months by that point. I really was very nervous. And like I say, I kind of, I was worried that I wasn't the right type of person, the right type of fit. But thank God, there was a moment as I was sort of sat in a meeting room, just kind of prepping, looking over my answers, where I realised I just have to be me. I can't try and be all these other people that I'm not. Yes, I don't have that person's experience or this person's background. But what I uniquely can bring is what I uniquely can bring. And I just need to focus on that. And this, this gave me just a moment of clarity and of, of realisation of like, I'm me. I got to accept that about myself and be happy about it and put forward the case of why I think I would be good in that role. Just being me, not trying to be somebody else. For my interview, for the exercise, I was put in one of the state rooms. So one of the rooms that would be used for, you know, formal functions. It's this huge room. I'm sitting on what I later learned was essentially an antique couch, um, you know, several centuries old. There's a portrait. <laughs> I think there's a portrait of Elizabeth I opposite me across this huge room. And I'm being asked to do this exercise, which was sort of meant to be typically representative of what the job would be like. I remember having this panic of like a few minutes in of, ah, oh, can I do this? And then just focusing and getting through. It comes time for the panel interview. Um, which was in um, what is known as the small dining room. Not, not, not as huge as the first room I was in, but still quite a grand feeling room, sort of wood panelled and impressive silverware, <laughs> all this kind of thing. So I'm sitting opposite three people and um, they come to that kind of question about, you know, why you for this role? And I just said it. I just realised... I need to be real and I need to be me. So what I said was, you know, there'll be lots of people around Whitehall who are very organised. That's key skill for the job. But what I'm uniquely good at is my ability to connect with people. I am just as comfortable ordering hot wings from the fried chicken shop in Mitcham, which is where I was living at the time as I am holding my own with the cabinet secretary, to whom I'd given a presentation just a couple of weeks earlier. And I just remember this moment of seeing on the panel's faces a sort of like, hmm. And in my head, <laughs> being like, I can't believe I've talked about fried chicken and hot wings. <laughs> but it's true, like, that's me. I am just as comfortable getting my three hot wings for 99p or, you know, 129 inflation as I am talking to these people who hold great offices of state. And that genuinely, I think, is one of the key skills that Allah has gifted me with that enables me to be good um, in the roles that I do at work, but particularly in this in this role that I was applying for. So. You're probably wondering what happened, right? Did I get the job? I did. 
And I still to this day wonder, why did Allah give me that opportunity? What was I put there to learn when I tell that story to people? The story of fried chicken in my interview at number 10. That maybe that was part, a very small part of the reason. Because I feel like it shows you can be authentically yourself and that authenticity shines greater than all the things that we worry about that make us different. You know, that's not the type of thing you're meant to talk about in an interview for number 10, right? You're meant to be talking about things that are perhaps more impressive. But I knew and I understood that that is what's impressive about me. And I don't say that in a arrogant way because I recognize totally that gift is from Allah. It's not from me. I love how Zahra was so comfortable in her own skin as a Muslim. We kind of apologize a lot for who we are. We say, I'm sorry I have to go pray. I'm sorry I don't drink. I'm sorry I don't go clubbing. I'm sorry I only eat halal meat. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's just refreshing to hear a story where Zahra is stating how comfortable she is buying fried chicken from her local chicken shop and <laughs> saying, this is who I am. I am not a Benedict. I am Zahra and I can do this job as well or better. It's about being comfortable being in your own skin and putting that forward for people to learn from and emulate. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found this really inspiring. Like, I'm job hunting at the moment and I think it's really easy to get into this rut of um, reading job descriptions and doing exactly what Zara did at the beginning and imagining what, you know, the mould is or what they're, they're really looking for and then feeling like, you're not quite that. How can you kind of convince them that you are? And so I really loved Zara's approach of just not feeling like she had to erase, you know, the parts of her identity that were core to her um, being and just, yeah, you know, weave that in. And I, in a really lighthearted way as well, I like that, you know, she didn't um, necessarily get super deep, but there's so many connotations to the thing that she chose to <laughs> say and it kind of is unspoken but understood. Um, and yeah, so I just, I found it really inspiring and just something, you know, a really good reminder of the way that I approach this phase of my life. Yeah, I tend to think that Muslim women of colour tend to put ourselves into boxes that has been thrusted upon us by the community. Like in the beginning, Zahra was like, I'm a brown Muslim. This job is for white males who are from a certain upbringing. And how she saw that name at the end of the job advertisement and how she found herself in the other person. Mm. It was a small thing that name was female and Muslim and through that she mustered up the courage to be like, yes, I'll apply for this. Mm. Wherever you are in the workforce or in the community, someone else might be watching you and you may be opening doors for the next generation of people like you. Because often you can't be what you can't see. Right. Yeah, I love that. And I think that really like it circles back to our home story in a way in that just the impact of, well, that firstly, that shared universal language of like the Muslim name and how that just is immediately a point of connection 
and of yeah. comfort as well. Like I felt like as Zara was saying that that was she felt like okay there was something within her comfort zone in that advert, and secondly the yeah just the impact that we have on each other that we don't realize that we have on each other so um and the ripple effect that that has so Zara then being in the role what effect might that have on people that come into that department or people that are looking to apply as well and now that she is in that role imagine the impact that she could have nationally and also to the next generation of young girls who would like to be her one day and it's just so inspiring. It is. And I really I really liked how she, at the end, circled back to, you know, leveraging this opportunity to benefit others and thinking about how can she serve people and um, affect sustainable change from the position that she's in and how, you know, keeping that at the forefront of her mind and her intentions is something that... Um, inshallah makes her really effective and it's not that she is proud of her achievements that she has garnered rather she realized that it is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mm. and she questioned why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put me in this position what's it all for so we can definitely learn from this story that every nikmah or gift comes with responsibility and we should always reflect on why we are given what we are given Absolutely. I think that's such a yeah, beautiful point maybe to end on and just the fact that any gift that we have or any blessing that comes our way is a, also a responsibility and that's such a good way of framing it. So, to our lovely listeners, that's the end of this episode. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. What have you learned from these three beautiful stories, Hania? What I really take away from this is how you don't necessarily come to a point where you're completely sorted with your identity it's something that's always going through revolutions and needs reinforcement Mm -hmm. and so I really liked how courage was mustered up in each of these different circumstances whether it was the courage to start something new in Raham's story or the courage to ask um, or the courage to try you know these are all yeah really reinforcing of my own connection with you know, Islam as being part of my identity. And I felt like I want to go out there and assert that as well. <laughs> For me, I learned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ultimately is the opener of door. But we also have to have the courage to take the first step. Yeah. So being comfortable and being brave in my Muslim identity, like you said, is something that we have to work on constantly. Mm. And inshallah, with Allah's grace, we will be more comfortable in our own skin which will lead to being better representations in our community, which will ultimately lead to creating a better ummah for the next generation, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much for joining us, inshallah. We look forward to sharing more stories next week. We love being able to share this podcast with you, but it is only possible with the help of your wonderful and insightful stories. So get in touch with us via our website, www.submissionspodcast.com You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our social media at Submissions Podcast on Instagram. Jazakallah khair for listening. Until next time, this was Submissions. Mm-hmm.